Sometimes when you prepare messages, you don't prepare a series per se, but God kind of links those messages together and they become a series. And so if I had, I feel like that's what's happening here lately on Sunday mornings and last Sunday night. Uh, And so if I had to title this series, I would say that we're dealing with happy fun things. Last Sunday morning, you'll remember, we talked about strife. Then last Sunday night, we talked about pain. So what happy, fun thing can we talk about this morning? Let's see. This week, the Lord has drawn my heart to a subject that is, I think, equally as relevant to the lives of most people, particularly Christians. We've talked about strife. We've talked about pain. This morning, with his help, we're going to spend some time talking about fear. We'll talk about fear. Psalm 56 was written regarding the events of 1 Samuel 21. Just to give you a quick narrative, David is fleeing from Saul. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing to deserve the way Saul has treated him. But Saul, in jealousy and in paranoia, is seeking to eliminate a man he thinks to be his rival. And in fleeing, he finds himself in Gath. Gath is a prominent city of the Philistines. It also happens to be the hometown of somebody named Goliath. Now, let's, let's say what we need to say here. David has stepped outside of God's will. There was no reason for him to run to the Philistines, but he did. But don't be too hard on him. Because how many times have we been afraid and stepped outside of God's plans? So, so David's made of the same stuff we are. And he says, Saul will never look for me in Gath. Why in the world would I go there? Here's the problem. He's immediately recognized as an older version of that plucky teenager that killed their champion. Not for nothing, perhaps the fact that he was carrying Goliath's sword may have gave him away. Because what did he get on his way down there? He went and got Goliath's sword from the priest. So you look like David. You're carrying Goliath's sword. That's probably David. And so he goes to their king, stands for Achish, the king of Gath, and he feigns himself mad in an attempt to either garner pity or convince the Philistines that he is no threat to them. Either way, David now finds himself in their custody, in the custody of Israel's greatest enemy. And they're pondering what to do with him. Many of them, no doubt, are lobbying not only that he should be killed, but I'd like the honor of doing it. I mean, this guy took out our champion. This guy's been nothing but problems to us. David's alone. And in Psalm 56, he openly admits that he is afraid. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And yet this David is afraid. How can fear find safe harbor in such a stout heart? The same way it finds safe harbor in ours. Now, one of the problems, it's unfortunate. Well-meaning Christians, pastors, Sunday school teachers, laymen, whoever. Well-meaning Christians have pushed a narrative 
that fear is inherently of itself sinful and cannot coexist with victory in the life of a faithful believer. Can I tell you, that's not so. Now, fear can become a sin. Fear can become a problem. But the presence of fear itself is not inherently sinful. And what we've done, well-meaning, but what we've done is we've established a standard that nobody can reach. And so the second fear enters into our heart, well, that's it. I'm just a sorry, no good Christian. My faith is, is worthless because I'm afraid. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, oh, but Andy, it, it does. Hold your place in Psalm 56. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. There shouldn't be fear in the life of a faith-filled Christian. Let's read the verse and see what it actually says. Isn't that a novel thought? 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Hold your place in Psalm 56. We'll be right back. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. See there, you can't be a faith-filled Christian and have fear. It doesn't say faith casts out love. It says casts out fear. It says love casts out fear. We're not talking about love. We're talking about faith. Now, admittedly, fear would indicate that our love has not been perfected. But can I tell you a secret? It's not going to be till we get to heaven. So the reality of it is we are going to have fears to deal with. We need to stop establishing this standard that nobody can live up to and rather preach where people are. And here's where they are. Everybody in here is afraid of something. As a result, it's wrong teaching. Many Christians are too ashamed to even mention their fears, let alone get help in overcoming them. Here's the question for you. What fear overpowers you today? Fear of failure? Fear of rejection? Fear of embarrassment? Fear of pain? Fear of death? Fear of the unknown? Your problem is not that fear exists in your life. Your problem is whether or not you allow it to thrive. Fear can yield positive results. For instance, if you're in an empty parking lot after dark and a strange figure begins to close in on you, fear will motivate you to either hasten to a safe position or take action that enhances your safety. Fight or flight. Either way, your fear was used in a productive way. But that is not what we're talking about today. We're, talking, we're not talking about who, those who respond to fear as a motivation to improve their situation. We're looking at those who have embraced fear as a lifestyle. And that's where it crosses the line into a real problem. When we have embraced fear as a lifestyle. Our nation has seen it, hasn't it? I'm not asking you to agree with me every jot and tittle on the whole COVID thing, but would you agree to me that we agree with me? But that whole that whole time period, we were just whether justifiably or not, we were just living in fear. Yeah. We were. Now, some of it, 
we need to be careful and we need to be prudent. But, but even now with what's going on in Israel and what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and what's going on even in our own country and the upcoming elections, if we're not careful, we can let fear overcome us and govern us in ways that God never intended. Some of us have learned to live with it and are more comfortable working around that fear than departing from it. It's paralyzed you for so long that its resulting anxiety and worry has has become not just an accepted evil, but a welcome friend. But if you look in the mirror of God's Word, you cannot help but see the damage this kind of fear does. I know. Because I'm often there myself. There have been times and continue to be times that fear is far more deeply rooted in me than it should be. And I find it paralyzing. And while I'm no master of this matter, I do know what the Bible teaches about it, particularly in this psalm, Psalm 56. Short-term fear can be useful, even positive. But long-term fear is deadly. And for me, I have, with God's help, have tried to take some specific and sometimes drastic steps to address the fear that so often plagues my existence. So I'm asking you to come with me. I'm taking some steps. I want you to take them with me. Listen, we're at all times going to have some fear. But for many, it's far worse. It's not that you have fear. It's that your fear has you. And as a result, your life is miserable and your service to Christ and growth in his word is so stunted, you will never reach your full potential for him unless you do something about this. This must be an important subject because when you look at the the introduction to this, he begins, David calls it a mictum. You know what a mictum means? It means, here's the idea of an engraving. David is saying to the choir master, the chief musician, this is important. Chisel it in stone and don't you dare edit it. This is something people need to hear. So let's take a stroll through Psalm 56. And let's learn some things about fear and the faithful. Fear and the faithful. And Father, I do ask you to help us today. I confess to you, Lord, that this week has been a busy one and I have not, I don't feel like that I have prioritized as well as maybe I should have. I confess it and ask you to forgive me. I can't put my finger on it, Lord, but this, this is just, I need your touch today. I need you to speak to us in an unusual way and help us as we endeavor to tackle this very prominent subject of fear. Be with us, we pray. May Jesus be glorified in it, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Fear and the faithful. First of all, number one, you need to understand the source that develops fear. The source that develops fear. I'm going to give you some introductory information and then we're going to find our way to Psalm 56. 
Fear is not inherently sinful, but it also needs to be understood that it doesn't come from God. Okay? 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. As such, it is not God's will that we live in fear. And that is so important that we understand this. Yes, we all, we all encounter fear from time to time, but I am telling you, it is not God's will that you live in a perpetual state of fear. It's just not. Faith can only exist alongside fear that is being definitively addressed not dutifully accepted. What do I mean by that? You can have faith and fear alongside each other, but it implies that you're trying to do something about the fear. But if you let fear take over, faith will be gone in a hurry. And you, you listen, you know I'm telling you the truth. There are some of us in here, maybe all of us, that we have something that just nags at us and nags at us. For me, I'll be transparent with you. For me, I constantly wrestle with the idea that I'm going to fail and I'm going to fall and I'm no good and I'm not good enough and I'm fearful of taking chances and I'm fearful of stepping out because I don't want to be seen for the fraud that I sometimes feel like I am. How about that for transparent? But if you're honest, some of you deal with the same kind of stuff. And we let that fear paralyze us. God's not the source of that. It didn't come from him. And so what we need to do, once we understand that God is not the source that develops fear, then number two, we understand the course that determines fear. I'm about to sound real smart. I'm not. But I know how to read. And I've done a lot of reading on this. Did you know that fear can only be directed in three ways? If there is fear in your life, I'm talking about lifestyle fear, it can only be going in three directions. It can be going inward. I am fearful about something in me. I'll give you an example. I'm struggling with my assurance of salvation. And the main reason, I'm using this example, I'm not saying I am currently right now. I'm just saying, although at times I do. And so do you sometimes. And if you say something like this, I'm nervous about not being saved because I may not have meant it, or I didn't do it right, or I'm not living up to it, or I, I, I. That is a fear that is directed inward. Could be your fear is not directed inward, your fear is directed outward. I'm scared of people. I'm scared of what's going on in this world. I'm scared of of the geopolitical situation. I'm scared of the next disease. I'm scared of a financial breakdown in this country. I'm I'm scared of the Russians. I'm scared of the the Chinese. I'm, I'm scared of... Muslim terrorist, I'm scared of this, I'm scared of, I'm scared of, of, I'm scared of the dude sitting next to me in the pew. I'm, I'm, I'm scared of my neighbor. I'm scared of my coworkers. I'm scared of my boss. I'm scared of the devil. I'm scared of the world. All that's outward. 
But here's the most dangerous one. Maybe it's not inward. Maybe it's not outward. Maybe it's upward. I'm scared that God isn't going to do what he said he would do. I'm scared that God's not as merciful as I hope he is. That he's not as gracious as I hope he is. I'm scared and it's directed towards God. So while we understand that fear does not develop from God as a source, we need to determine if the fear we're dealing with is primarily inward, outward, or upward. We've got to understand the source that develops fear. We've got to understand the course that determines fear. And then once we've got that, now we begin to understand the force that destroys fear. And that's where we come to Psalm 56. What is the force that destroys fear? I'm going to give you a spoiler. It all centers around God. What can I do to get a handle on my fear? The answer is nothing. If you're going to get victory over fear, God's the only one can do it. This is just a matter of sitting back and letting God do what only God can do. And if I'm going to understand and apply the force that destroys fear, here's where it starts. It starts in God's preeminence. Verse number two. He says, be merciful in me, verse one, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemy would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me. O thou most high. This is just, this is just a quick little side note. Um, those that are familiar with our ministry know that uh, we, we love and embrace the King James. We're not, we're not mean about it. We don't think that other people that use other versions don't love the Lord or can't grow in the Lord. But, but we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty stout about the King James around here. We love it. And one of the reasons is I've got, I suppose, every major translation in my study. And with the exception of one, and let's give them their credit, the New King James Version, with the exception of one, every one of them eliminate that phrase, Thou Most High God. And that's unfortunate. Now, the reason they do that is because in the text that these other translations use, it's not included there. But in the text that the King James is based on, it is. And, and again, if, if you're toting an ESV or in New American Standard or whatever, I'm not telling you to throw it in the garbage. I'm not telling you that we hate you or anything like that. I'm just telling you one of the reasons that we've chosen to use this translation is because of things like this. Because this is a super important point. That David calls him, Thou Most High is what we call theologically significant. He uses a very instructive name for God. You know, God has, boy, be careful how I say this. God has many titles within his name. El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh, and so forth. The word that he uses here, the name that he uses here is Meram, M-A-R-O-M, Meram. 
Now, here's what Merah means. It means the elevated one. That's where we get our preeminence. The elevated one. What do we take, take from this? That David's speaking to a God that he believes is preeminent. He is elevated above all. So here's David sitting in a holding cell of the Philistines in Gath. They're outside his cell, and they are yelling at him. They are calling him all kinds of names. They are blaspheming his God. They are trying to decide what to do with him. Should we just go ahead and kill him? Should we put him out in the street for sport and make fun of him? What should we do? And what does David do? He looks upward, and he says, Merom, God... My God, the elevated one. You, my God, are preeminent. You're higher than all of this that's around me. And it's important, Christian, that if you're going to get victory over fear, that you understand you serve the God who is preeminent and elevated above everything you're going to face. What does that mean for us? I fear the enemy's strength. Well, your God is omnipotent. I fear the enemy's tactics. Well, your God is omniscient. I fear the enemy's presence. Well, your God is omnipresent. I fear the enemy's influence. Well, your God is transcendent. I fear the enemy's intention. Well, your God is sovereign. I fear the enemy's wounds. Well, your God is the healer. I fear the enemy's destruction. Well, your God is the creator. I fear the enemy's longevity. Well, your God is eternal. He's preeminent in every way, shape, and form. That's right. And if you'll get victory over fear, you notice his preeminence. And when God occupies his rightful place of preeminence, fear begins to be destroyed. But the second you take your eyes off of him, what happens? Fear. Can I prove it? Well, I don't think you even need to turn there. Ask Peter. One of only two men to walk on the surface of the water. And as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus, what came? Fear. If I'm going to understand the force that destroys fear, I look to God's preeminence. You know what else? I look to God's power. Verse number four. He says, In God I will praise his word, in God have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. And then in verse number 11, he says, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. This is a super elementary statement. But have we determined like David did that God, our God, is more powerful than man? Well, of course, amen, preacher, we believe it. Then why don't we act like it? Why is it that when, when somebody comes against us in any situation, well, I'll tell you, we pick up the phone, we call other people, we talk about it, we seek counsel, we go to the lawyers, we go to the politicians, and then when all else fails, let's talk to God about it. I believe more often than not, if we'd have gone to God first, we wouldn't need any of that other stuff.
right now there's a bill before our General Assembly. I'm going to say more about it, maybe even tonight. It is a bill that's been introduced by Delegate Bobby Orrock at the request of ODAX, of which we're a member. We had requested a certain bill be submitted, and Mr. Orrock, Delegate Orrock, said, oh, no, let's go further than that. And, and it, for all intents and purposes, if this bill were to pass and be signed by the governor, it would eliminate any state intrusion in our school's daycare. Boy, that'd be wonderful. Now, those of us that are politically oriented with a Democratic majority on both sides of the assembly, its passage is unlikely. So why are we even trying? I'll tell you why. Because God is more powerful than men. I've seen it work this year. Well, not this year, 2024, but within the last, the last, you know, 365 days. Do you remember in California? California State Assembly passed a law that basically made it criminal for parents to not, to not um, support a child's gender transition. And everybody braced, it for, braced for it to become law because Governor Newsom, he, he agrees with that position and has, led, he has signed bills in the past that were equally as heinous and horrible. And so Californians braced themselves for a terrible law to become enacted. And then Governor Newsom vetoed it. Now, the pundits jumped right in. Well, the reason he did that is because he's trying to moderate himself in case he has a shot at the White House. Well, you can say that all you want to. I'm telling you, God overruled. By the way, this isn't about Democrat versus Republican. Republicans have passed some pretty bad legislation, too. Let me make that clear. I go into the voting booth as a Christian. I just got this crazy idea that God's bigger than Gavin Newsom. And God's bigger than President Biden. And, and, and hey, God's bigger than Donald Trump, too. Donald Trump is not our Savior. Let me go ahead and make that real clear. I appreciate some of the positions he's taken and some of the things he did when he was president. But it's starting to cross over into man worship, and we need to put the brakes on that foolishness. Donald Trump isn't God, and neither was Ronald Reagan, and I love Ronald Reagan. Getting a little fired up here. So. I just I don't like other people trying to take credit for what only God can do. And this, this commercial they put out, that God made Donald Trump. Like God can't get it done without him. Blasphemous. I'm calling it what it is. Vote who you want to, but I'm saying it's wrong. God doesn't need Donald Trump anymore, and he needs me. I might cut this congregation in half, but we are not going to worship a man in this church. I'm sorry, we're just not. Man, where'd that come from? Well, who are you going to vote for between him and President Biden? 
A, none of your business. B, I'm writing in Aaron Davies. <laughs> or maybe Robert Vaught. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> we got to look to God's power. You know what else? We got to look to God's precepts. Now, this is where a lot of people miss it. If you're going to deal with fear in your life, you will not do it outside of the word of God. Verse number four, in God, I will praise his word. Verse number uh, 10, in God, will I praise his word? In the Lord, will I praise his word? There is a direct connection between the, the between our fears and the prevalence of God's word in our lives. The more that the word of God saturates and dictates our lives, the less fear we allow. But when somebody is fearful, the first thing I'm likely to ask you is, how you doing with the word? Because great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And when fear starts getting a foothold, it is probably because we have not embraced the word like we should. God's preeminence, God's power, God's precepts. How about God's providence? There's another word I went back and forth on, but it sounds too academic. But I also like the word pathos. Pathos has the idea of feeling. And in God's providence, he demonstrates his love for us, his feeling for us. Look at what it says in verse number 8. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. I want to focus first on that one phrase, God is for me. That doesn't mean he's for everything we do. It doesn't mean he's for everything we think. As parents, are we for everything our kids do and think? No. And if you are, buckle down because your kids are going to run all over you. Sometimes I have to tell my kids they're wrong. One more than the other. All right, it's Asher. Sometimes I have to correct things in my kids' life, but I never stop being for them. And I'm going to tell you, you want to test that out? Do something to my kid. And Papa Bear wakes up. And the only thing worse than Papa Bear is Mama Bear. <laughs> you know how little baby snakes don't know how to control their venom? They're more dangerous. Well, Mama Bears don't know how to hold back. Mama Bears can be vicious. I know. Because I live with that Mama Bear. God may not always be for what you do or what you want, but I can promise you there's never been a moment God's not been for you. And we've got, to, we've got to get ourselves away from this idea that God is in heaven wanting to hit us over the head because we've ticked him off. And thankfully, the blood of Jesus keeps him from doing it. No, God is love. And he loves you. He loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you so you could be with him. Never forget that. 
And that love yields his providence. He's for you. And he demonstrates this in his tender care in two areas. Number one, God keeps track of your travels. Everywhere you go, he knows. Thou tellest my wanderings. Oh, let me tell you something. We've got a wonderful technology that I cannot wait to apply in the life of my children. They're called Apple Tags. Everything my kids have that they can leave with is going to have an Apple Tag in it. I'm going to know where their car is. I'm going to know where their book bag is. I'm going to know where their wallet is. I'm going to know where their skull is because I'm putting one in there too. I'm going to know where they are with these Apple Tags because I want to know their steps. I want to know everything they're facing. I want to know their travels. Can I tell you something? God doesn't need an Apple Tag. He knows where you are. Every step you've ever taken, not only does he know it, he's been with you. You know how I know? Because he said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. You can feel as alone as you want to, but you are never alone, child of God. He's always with you. You know what else? He doesn't just know our travels. He knows our travails. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle are they not in thy book periodically kids in this church will hand me stuff a picture that they've drawn or colored or a note that they've written a couple of them even give me sermon notes of my sermon and what bothers me about that is sometimes their notes are better than mine (laughs) and certainly more legible my wife drives her crazy I'm what's called a sentimental hoarder. You won't come to my home and find trash piled up and stuff like that. I can let go of an old suit that I can't fit into anymore. I can do that. But when there's something sentimental, somewhere in my possession, I have every note that a little kid's ever written me. Every one. Why? Because they mean something to me. And that's exactly how God feels about your tears. He keeps every tear that's ever dropped out of your eye in his bottle. He records every travail in his book. The devil would have you believe that God doesn't care, but I got news for you. Not only does he care, he saves it all. How long does he keep it? At least 4,000 years. How do I know? Because when you go to Revelation, you see something called vials, bottles. You know what's in them? The prayers of saints. Same thing David's talking about. If God keeps something for 4,000 years, it must mean something to him. It must matter to him. Fear thrives when you think God doesn't care. But I got news for you. He does. If we're going to understand the force that destroys fear, we understand God's preeminence. We understand his power, his precepts, his providence. One last thing. You're going to have to get a hold of God's promises. Look at verse number 12. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. You ever made a vow? 
The Bible says it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. Vows are an important thing. But notice David doesn't say that he's leaning on his vows. What's he say? Thy vows are upon me. What's David saying? I am able to bear up against this fearful circumstance, not because of the promises that I've made to God, but because of the promises that God's made to me. In particular, maybe he's thinking about 1 Samuel 16, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Maybe he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm sitting here in jail in, in Gath, but God said I'm the next king. This can't end here. This can't be it. Because God made me a promise. And if I die in this jail, then God's a liar. Maybe you might do well when you find yourself in a tough situation to start thinking about the promises that God's made you. And understand that God's not a liar. God's not a man that he should repent. If God says something so, it's so, and it's it's time to start leaning on his promises. Maybe your greatest fear is the matter of your salvation. I've, I've tried to trust Christ, and I just, can I tell you something? With me, and I, when I struggle with this, more often than not, it's got nothing to do with anything except that I need to look to God and say, okay, I don't measure up. I was not a very good Christian today. I shouldn't have had that attitude. I shouldn't have said those words. I shouldn't have thought those thoughts. But my salvation is not dependent on whether or not I hold up my end of some bargain. My salvation is 100% determined by whether or not God holds up his end. And I may fail him and fail him and fail him, but the best I knew how with a, with a, with a, a scattered and, and moldy faith, I took that faith and put it in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. And he said, if I'll come to him, he'll in no wise cast me out. So I'm going to heaven, not because of how I feel or how I act or what I do or what I think. I'm going to heaven because my God keeps his promises. But if you don't think God keeps his promises, you are destined for a life of nothing but terrible fear. So what? Andy, I got fear in my life. What do I do? Fear always brings with it a choice. Don't pack up. I've still got one more verse. I know you're normally excited to see that, so what? Suspend your excitement, okay? Fear always brings a choice. How are we going to respond? That snarling dog comes at you, you got a choice, right? Now, my choice would not be to run. When I was younger, maybe. Now, I'm not going to outrun that dog. Not anymore. Now, if I'm with somebody and I think I can outrun them, (laughs) then running might be an option. Or if I can push them down, running might be an option. But for me, if I have adequately prepared, 
then my response is going to be, and then if I go, then I'm gone. <laughs> Fear always brings a choice. How are we going to respond? Verse 3 is our so what. You ready? I'm going to give you three words. You ready? The first word is determination. Word number one is determination. Verse three, what time I am afraid. Fear will come, admit it. But I have determined by God's grace, it will be in increments of time. It will not be a lifestyle. It will come and it will go. I've determined that with God's help. I'm not going to live in it. God helping me, I will not live in fear. What time I am afraid. Then you move from determination to a decision. I will trust. We always feel like it? No. But we don't always feel like the decisions we make, do we? Have you made a decision you didn't feel like following through on, but you did it anyway because you made a decision? What time I am afraid, I've determined it's not going to be something that stays. I've made a decision. I will trust. And then the third, letter, third word, direction. I will trust not in me or my ability or my friends or my family. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. My trust is God-centered, not ego-centered, God-centered. We all have moments of fear, don't we? And some of us are living in it. It's time to follow the Word of God and deal with the fear of the faithful. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, please.